And it's my pleasure to introduce one of our own to do our sermon today, Mr. Brian Benick, Master of Divinity. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Just want to do a little sound check here because I found it to be a little challenging the last few weeks to hear at different points in the nave. So can everybody hear me all right? I got thumbs up, even in the front. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. Today's scripture theme should be encouraging to us with all, the, with all humility in three of today's passages, 1 Kings, Psalm 119, and Romans 8. We are reminded that we do not fully know the mind of God, that we are not wise enough to discern the right path in every instance, that we are sorely in need of a guide as we navigate our way through this life. And the beautiful thing is that God is ready to share his wisdom with us, to tutor us in wise choices and wise living and loving. In the first Kings 3 passage to Solomon, God says, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. That's verse 12. And in Psalm 119, Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And then later, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And in the case of our passage in Romans, chapter 8, we benefit from his wise counsel, even if we are not able consciously to grasp it. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Once again, we see that God's people are in partnership with him in this business of living out the kingdom between the now and the not yet. We aren't given a brain dump of wisdom once for all time such that we unerringly and automatically make the wise choice every time we're faced with a difficult decision. We are dependent moment to moment on God's own mind, wisdom, spirit, and he readily meets us there. He calls, we answer, we call, he answers, and so it goes. Just as review, let's remember that knowledge and wisdom are two different but related concepts. Wisdom is often conceived of as the art and science of applying knowledge to live life rightly before God and before our fellow human beings. We all know brainiacs who do not operate in life in a wise manner, and we can all call to mind simple, unsophisticated, unschooled people who have proven them, themselves to be wise, making right choices, and living good and godly lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is the refrain in the Proverbs. 
And it reminds us of the humility that is necessary for wisdom to find its home in us. We can grow in wisdom, but we can never arrive. For all the wording in the biblical text that resembles the concept of acquiring wisdom, we cannot acquire it in an ultimate sense, that is, to own it or arrogate it to ourselves. Wisdom is, in some way, a sort of personification of God himself. So what are we to do with this? I am glad that in this congregation we're not addicted to three-step formulae for solving problems and applying scripture. Of course, sometimes there really are three-step processes that are the right way to apply our faith to daily life and its challenges, but let's not assume that it's always that clear or simple. It is in the not knowing, the lack of assurance, when we're thrown upon the Lord, when our backs are to the wall, that the fear and the trust of the Lord come into play in our lives and bear their fruit. So then, what are we to do? We could talk about the esoteric, the theoretical, and the philosophical in the search for wisdom. I'm not sure that would help us. And if I were to go that route, I would probably not understand myself what I was talking about. And my voice would no doubt put you to sleep. So let's not do that. Remember that as God is speaking with Solomon about this subject in 1 Kings, he knows the man inside and out. He says, if, if you will walk in my ways. Solomon cannot live up to this condition. Perhaps he did for a while, but eventually he's not able to. He fails. Solomon is not up to it, and neither are we. It, is, it really is better to know this. Rather than having an inflated idea of our own knowledge and wisdom, it is much better to make an accurate assessment of our inadequacies in this area. Is not humility a part of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom? Let me give you a life example. Sarah and I spent the first five years of our missionary career living in the Turkish Moroccan ghetto of Brussels. There were many highs and lows of this experience. The thrill of the open door of hospitality and friendship with our new Muslim friends in the city, sharing meals, groping our way with a second and third language. The joys of seeing the international influences on our kids and the horror of seeing the international influences on our kids as they grew. By the way, the Brussels bombers of 2016 grew up with our kids in this same neighborhood. And God had led us to invest ourselves in a wonderful new French-speaking church plant in Brussels, one that would eventually become one of the more dynamic churches in the country. At the same time, we were trying to learn the Turkish language and reaching out to these friends in their homes and tea houses. But to be honest, that part of the work was a discouraging slog. For me, hour after hour, day after day, and eventually years of watching Turkish men play cards in smoke-filled cafes where men were more passionate about their newfangled cell phones at that time than about their spiritual destiny. It took a tool, toll. What was I doing? Why was I sacrificing an engineering career to spend my days 
in cafes with unemployed Anatolian peasants who seem to have been beamed into a modern European capital by diplomatic agreements and long-dead work contracts. I remember that Sarah's parents were visiting us for a couple of weeks, our fourth year in Brussels, chance to see the grandkids before the in-laws flew home for Thanksgiving in the Cleveland area. I remember distinctly that evening walking home from my Turkish cafe route. Yeah, it would be nice to have dinner with Sarah's parents, partly because there was always an expensive cut of meat that would magically appear when they came to visit. My mother-in-law loved our local grocery store in, in our neighborhood. But how could I put a happy face on what seemed to be a ministry that was going nowhere among the Turks? My father-in-law was a successful businessman. Now, they had always been supportive of us, supporting us financially, helping us in many practical ways, upholding us in prayer, visiting. But as I trudged back to the house on that cold and drizzly gray evening, my heart was sinking. What were we doing? In some form that evening, I let it be known that I felt defeated. I felt ready to quit. To be honest, I don't think I was even praying about it. It was just too painful. I did not know what to do. I did not know what to pray. What was the wise choice at this juncture? Well, the in-laws went home, having heard my doubts, and although they continued to be supportive in this process, I had the sense that they were ready to welcome the whole kit and caboodle back to Cleveland where they would help us get back on our feet and do something a bit more normal. With respect to today's passage, this was inexpressible groaning, at least on my part. You can ask Sarah, but I doubt that I was able adequately to express what I felt and feared during those weeks. So a few, a few weeks uh, did go by, a few weeks of swimming in a haze of not knowing, not caring, hoping, looking forward, looking back. And we received a simple greeting card from one of our prayer warriors from a supporting church, which did not contain a lot of text, but quoted 1 Corinthians 15:58 at the bottom of the card. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I don't think Sarah's parents had spoken of our struggles to the mission's prayer team. But really, it doesn't matter if that was the case or not. This was perhaps the only verse in the Bible that would have communicated to me at that point in my life. My back was against the wall. I couldn't even articulate my doubts or my questions. I was groaning. And God reached down to a very sweet and simple woman who lived in a trailer park in North Olmsted and gave me a word. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Call me crazy. I took this as God's word to us. Sarah recognized the same word of the Lord in it. The Holy Spirit had translated my groanings, our groanings, interceded before the Father, and brought an answer. And no, it doesn't always work that way either. So just to bring closure to that story, we did decide to make a change reorient our work toward Muslims in general in the same city, not just the Turks, 
to team up with like-minded missionaries in a real team joining their organization and we continued on with that for the next 22 years. Now let's take our passage in Romans, verse 26. If you want to look at it, you have it there in your insert. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What weakness? Our weakness is that we do not know what we ought to pray. Hopefully I've just illustrated from our personal experience that we do not always know how or what to pray. Even though Christ taught us how to pray, even what to pray, we do not know, we don't remember. We don't necessarily know the Lord's will in this case or that. We don't see clearly. We panic. We're tired, exhausted, speechless. I have often heard myself and others say I believe in the power of prayer. But perhaps it's better to believe in the power of God and then simply pray in whatever way we can. The verse goes on to say, we don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. <clears throat> groanings. This is a common Old Testament image, the groanings of God's people in slavery in Egypt. These groanings are understood through and by the Spirit of God as a prayer, a cry for redemption out of slavery, out of a sort of death. This is Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, because of their slavery and cried out for help. <clears throat> their cry for rescue from slavery came to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew... Please mull over that last phrase. God knew. We, do, we don't have much record of what happened to the people of God in Egypt in the intervening years. Between the family of Israel's descent into Egypt and this groaning for release 430 years later. This family was launched in Egypt as a, on a privileged trajectory. The brothers may have been despised shepherd, but they were commissioned, royaled, royal, salaried, despised shepherds in any case. But things can change incrementally or maybe even quite quickly under new leadership. And the privileged family of Israel find themselves, yes, multiplied in number, but increasingly marginalized, controlled, and exploited by the native population. Now, I have suffered little in my life. I have no right to speak about suffering or persecution to people who have a harder road than I do. I'm simply trying to make sense of our biblical text, so forgive me if I am ignorant of the realities. But it seems like suffering is not only sometimes the consequence of bad choices or sin, but is a part of the fabric of being human, truly human, being part of the people of God. For the Christian, there's no way around suffering. Hebrews 5.8 of Jesus says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. If you bear the name Christian, then you have every reason to learn obedience and to be fashioned into the likeness of the human being, which is another way to read the words, the Son of Man in the Gospels. The human being, the prototypical human being, the ideal human being, the true human being. 
And the next verse in Hebrews says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That last part of providing salvation, we do not have an active role in, in the fullest sense, but we do move toward glorifying God in our sanctification and eventual purification, even perfection. But this groaning is also tied to the experience of travail. Sorry, ladies, I know there are a couple of you thinking about that. A common image of the birth pangs of suffering in the end times and the and the church in Rome in Paul's time certainly thought that they were in this place. In one sense, the end had been coming since then and will continue to come. Romans 8:22 and 23, just before our passage, our, our passage of today. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's a difficult thing to compare our experience of suffering with those of the early church, and indeed to the experience of believers in other parts of the world today. In some ways, our experience is reversed to the point where some who claim to follow Christ in the West enjoy privilege. And to be fair, we must remember, though, that there were fewer official periods of persecution by the Roman Empire than, than we think. It was spotty. That said, there were, and there are now, plenty of Christians in situations who suffer in the same ways as those to whom Paul was writing this letter. But whatever the case, suffering is suffering. We all suffer from an imperfect and unjust world, we are all at the mercy of disasters, the personal pain of relational conflicts, disappointments of life, the loss of loved ones. Some of us know very well the sufferings of this body of flesh, sometimes as a result of our choices and sometimes seemingly by chance. This world is groaning, our bodies are groaning, our society is groaning for its own redemption. Please understand that I'm not saying that all sufferings are necessarily suffering for Christ's sake, but I am saying that all suffering in a fallen world is suffering, period. So what a wonderful phrase we read at the end of the passage about the sufferings of the people of God in Egypt, and God knew. God knows. He hears. He sees. Verse 27 in Romans 28, and he who searches hearts. Now this is an instant, instance of a completely unique name of God. He who searches hearts. We don't often call God by this name, but he who searches hearts is given as his name here. Just as he knew what was in David's heart, the good and the bad, he judged him rightly and not only by appearance. This God knows your heart, your thoughts, your longings, your disappointments, your joys, your points of pride in a good way and in the other way. Is there any need to pray if God knows all of that? Well, is there any need for saying I love you if you've said it once? Is there any need for saying good morning or please? It's what we do in human society. So is there a need to pray? It's just that Christians must pray. This is the beating heart and the process of breathing for a Christian follower. 
In the 1993 movie Shadowlands, Anthony Hopkins plays C.S. Lewis, who's struggling with the illness of his great love, Joy, whom he marries while she is very sick with cancer and in the hospital. At one point, Joy shows some improvement, and the priest in this story, Harry, says to Lewis, I know how hard you've been praying, and now God is answering your prayers. C.S. Lewis says back, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. If you wake up in the morning, your husband or your wife doesn't say good morning or give you a kiss or start some small talk or something, you know something's wrong. So if we walk through our days without whispering anything toward God, thank you and oh God because we have a deep need, or maybe we just need to open our prayer book and walk through a confession or a collect or a creed. But I want you to know that a simple groan, a one-word prayer, a tear, is a substantial prayer that the Holy Spirit hears, inspires, or interprets in the presence of the Father. When you have nothing else, God hears your prayer, your longing, your pain, words or no words, ineffable, unspeakable, inarticulate, or incomprehensible. God knows. God hears. God walks with us. And God does act in the fullness of time. I want to encourage you to pray in whatever form. Now on to verse 28 quite a famous verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't know where I first heard this illustration concerning God's care, God's plan for us, God's providence, but often we seem to be looking at the reverse side of the Persian rug of our, our lives. The reverse side is not beautiful, does not have an identifiable design. There are ugly sections and stray threads and colors that seem to clash. Some of, some of us live a good portion of our Christian lives not seeing a coherent picture, not knowing what it's supposed to look like, or even what we could do with those loose threads to make some of it better. There will be a day when we are able to see the presentable side of the carpet, where it all comes into focus. The design is clear and beautiful. The colors all work together. And that mess on the backside is seen finally as having some purpose, some plan. Some of us get a thumbnail sketch of the other side briefly as we muddle along. Some get to see it clearly in advance. I think most of us will have to wait till we're seated at the wedding supper of the Lamb before we can throw our rug out onto the dance floor and see it clearly. We're not going to try to guilt ourselves with this verse. It's an incredibly encouraging verse. Anyone who is in Christ is called according to his purpose. And the things that he will work together for good, not always in a direct way for our good, but for the good, are those very matters of persecution that the Roman church was suffering at that time in verse 18. Real persecution. One day we will see the other side of the carpet. On to verses 29 and 30, if you have it in front of you. Many thousands of pages have been written on the idea of 
predestination in the Bible. We can only treat this doctrine in the simplest of terms in the kind of time that we have. But I also believe that we must have a proper balance with respect to the word itself. The word that we translate predestined in the New Testament is only used six times. And the way it's used in our passage is as good a definition as we are to find anywhere. The way the, the concept appears here in verse, verses 29 and 30 is the definition of predestination in the Bible. So we have, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 29 gives us the divine role, the mind of God in the process, and then in verse 30 we see the process, process at work on his people. Verse 29, here we have foreknowledge, a creator God who knows us completely and fully, just as we noted in the Exodus passage, when the new nation of Israel found themselves mired in slavery. God knew, God had a plan to work out, and I will note, with or without a certain generation of his people. And this God desires to create and raise up a people for himself. Do you see the family language here? The firstborn among many brothers, and that includes sisters. In the mind of God, there is a plan, a goal, for which he has predestined his people. That knowledge of us, of his plan, of the multiple and various possible strains of history, have something to do with the plan that he has for us and for his people. He will bring it to pass, and we can be part of that. No one wants to degrade or discount any point of God's divine nature. Of course he predestines his people for his purposes and based on his perfect foreknowledge of us, everything else. And now, you, now you, you can take this idea and you can hone it to the point where man has no free will or choice in the matter, which is what some people mean by the concept of predestination. <clears throat> but if this is the case, I don't understand why we have the rest of the Bible, which on almost every page presents us with history, narratives, proverbs about man's responsibility to make the right choices before God. If man has no free will in the matter of choosing God's way or responding to his choice of us, perhaps we have the wrong Bible. Yes, we are responsible for our choices before God, and yes, he has predestined his people for his purposes. Can we expect to understand how those things work together? If this falls short of logical explanation, perhaps our science of logic is not able to handle this case, just as Newton's laws are not able to handle physics when you approach the speed of light. Maybe this sounds simplistic to some, but think about it. So we see that the mind of God toward us in verse 29. Now in verse 30, we see the process at work in his people. We see a movement from being predestined in the mind of God to being called, and here I like the Calvinist wording, of an effective calling. It is effective. And the work of Christ in justifying those who are effectively called all the way till the completion of the process and sanctification and glorification, the whole goal of the created universe, the reason for which the whole creation is now longing and groaning, that his people would be made complete in being made in his image. And that will be glorious. The other idea I'd like to point out in this passage is that it's fiercely Trinitarian. 
there is much overlap to the functions and responsibility of God, of the persons of God, such that it would be impossible to extricate one person from the other and it would be impossible to explicate them fully. In verse 26, the Spirit intercedes for his people. In verse 34, it's the person of Christ who intercedes. From one end to the other of this passage, it speaks of God's foreknowledge, his plan, his effective calling, his work in bringing his people to himself. Few passages are morally, more clearly Trinitarian than this. I invite you to pick this passage, pick it back up this afternoon and meditate on it. And we'll end here with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? These things, of course, are God's plan for his people. And the words, if God be for us, as C.E.B. Cranfield says in his two-volume commentary on Romans, the, the words, God be for us, is a concise definition of the gospel. God be for us. If God is for us, then he is ready to give his people what they need to become good news, to become more like him in this city, where we live, work, study, and play. Christ and the Spirit are interceding for us, and God is ready to give us the wisdom we need in going forward. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.